I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm so glad to be here with all of you this morning. And I love talking about this material, um, not just because it's fascinating and because it's left an indelible imprint on the history of America and in many ways all over the world, which I'll talk about in a moment, but also because it's made uh, a life-changing imprint on my own life and story. I um, actually grew up at the parish where Sam Shoemaker first served as uh, a curate um, just down the street on 11th and Broadway, Grace Church. And as a little boy, I attended preschool and at St. George's Jack and Jill School, the Yoke Parish here. And then in uh, seminary, I um, actually served this parish as a summer placement under Nancy Hanna's great and important tutelage. I still make use of all the things I learned in this parish on a daily basis. Um, when I was 19, I... Uh, went to a college. I'd read about it in a book called The Insider's Guide to Colleges. And it said, what is hot at Kenyon College? And it said, beer, drugs, lenient alcohol policies. So I applied early decision. And it took me one semester uh, to blow through a year's savings and land myself in serious heat and um, got home for Christmas, a Christmas when the only, I told my parents I didn't want anything, and uh, they gave me the only gift they could come up with that year that they thought I might like. It was a t-shirt of Bob Marley smoking a joint. And, uh, and then they drove me to a small town called LaGrange, Georgia where they dropped me off at an inpatient uh, rehab uh, for 19 days. I then returned to Kenyon College on a, um, I guess it was sort of a probational agreement. Amazingly, the doctor at the college had a brother who had sobered up in AA. And he had a very, uh, he had a big sweet spot in his heart for helping college kids to get sober. And so I arrived uh, back at college, um, very apprehensive. I was required to attend five AA meetings a week. I was uh, to be randomly drug tested. And they, um, I got back, not sure what to really expect. And there was a knock on my door. And sure enough, it was a buddy who I had been partying with just the semester earlier. And he said, I'm taking us to um, an AA meeting. And so we drove to the town of Mount Vernon, Ohio, the place where bubblegum was invented, and uh, walked into my first AA meeting. Um, it was full of smoke, uh, which I loved at the time. I was smoking Salem Light 100s. Can you just kill me now? Um, like a pack a day of the grossest cigarette ever invented. Um, so I had my menthols, and I sat down at this table, and they do something in Ohio AA meetings that they don't do in most other places I've ever been. They have something called a 50-50 raffle, where you um, can give a dollar or two uh, into a basket, and you'll get a raffle ticket. And at the end of the meeting, they draw one of the tickets out, and half of the money that's collected in that raffle 
gets to stay um, with the meeting. Um, they raise money for AA that way. The other half of the money goes to the person whose ticket's drawn. It's called 50-50. And so I walk into my first AA meeting, and um, at the end of it, they call my number. And I hadn't even bought a ticket, but somebody handed me one. And so at my first AA meeting, they actually paid me $50. (laughs) And then they told me, oh, you didn't know? AA started just up the road in Akron, Ohio. And I tell you all of those pieces of my story. In fact, one more piece. I'm now the rector of St. Matthew's in Bedford, New York. And Bedford um, is a a town made up of three villages, Bedford, Bedford Hills, and Katona. And some of you may know that Katona is where Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, and his wife Lois moved and spent the final 35 years of his life living. You can still to this day go and visit the museum that's called Stepping Stones. You can go to the office where Bill wrote down the 12 and 12. You can see the letters that he wrote back and forth with Carl Jung. It's absolutely a fascinating place. And so what I'm telling you is through no intention of my own, this material has been haunting me and seemingly following me wherever I went for my entire life. And so I've embraced that, and today I want to talk to you a little bit about um, some of what that's come to mean to me, both as a 20-plus year sober, still active member of AA. I was at a meeting on Monday, uh, met with a sponsee on Monday afternoon who I'm taking through the steps, um, just like was done with me when I first came in, and I'm still doing it all these years later. Um, And let's just think a little bit now about this man, Sam Shoemaker, and his influence. So that's all a long introduction to qualify myself to be up here today. I'm going to read a little. Um, Hopefully it'll make sense. Today we honor one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, Sam Shoemaker. In his day, and by the way, there will be some overlap with some of the things that Jacob said, um, and that's okay. Shoemaker was one of the most famous preachers in New York City, and he proclaimed the Christian faith in unshrinking boldness right here in this sanctuary. His sermons were syndicated for distribution by tape and radio networks for decades, and he authored more than 30 books. His influence within the Episcopal Church was so great that we now celebrate him annually in our calendar of feast days every January 31st or yesterday, thus today's gathering. But most of you won't be surprised to hear that his primary impact and legacy do not come from his writings or his well-regarded sermons nor does his fame derive primarily from the role he played in the Episcopal Church. Although he was a massive force in the Episcopal Church, he was runner-up to become suffragan bishop of the Diocese of New York. He was once called to serve at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, another amazing parish on the West Coast, but the West Coast, as is often the case for New Yorkers, intimidated the hell out of him, and he turned it down. He almost became the dean of St. John the Divine, He also almost became the dean of the National Cathedral. All of those things happened before moving to Calvary in Pittsburgh. And I tell you all of that only um, 
for those of you who are familiar with the Episcopal Church, those are the biggest, uh, most prominent roles in almost the entire influential Episcopal Church. And in his day, those were monumental jobs just to have been considered for. But Shoemaker's influence is still experienced, not just within the Episcopal Church. In fact, it's waned in the Episcopal Church. But it's experienced still on a daily basis by hundreds of thousands of people around the world through the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe you've heard of it. A conservative estimate places current AA membership at 2.1 million members worldwide. And groups meet daily in more than 200 countries around the world. The basic text, Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is the copy that they gave me when I first arrived at that treatment center in Georgia. I underlined all kinds of things. I don't know what I was talking about. I had no insight, but I still like to see um, just how foggy my brain was because I underlined people's names and who knows. (laughs) The basic text, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's also commonly referred to as the big book was first published in 1939, and it has since sold, I kid you not, more than 35 million copies, making it one of the best-selling books of all time, rivaling Webster's Dictionary and Roger's Thesaurus. It's no wonder that Kurt Vonnegut, who, by the way, was a member of Grace Episcopal Church down the street, claimed that AA and jazz were America's two most vital contributions to history. I suspect that there's not a person in this room who is not somewhat familiar with AA and her famous program of recovery known as the 12 Steps. And there are, according to Wikipedia, more than 35 spin-off 12-step groups as well. I'm chewing a piece of four milligram Nicorette gum at the moment. I learned there's something called uh, Nicotine Anonymous last night when I was researching this. And so I I think I've probably earned a seat. I've been chewing this stuff for four years straight, having gone through vaping. I haven't had a cigarette in a few years. And uh, still, nicotine is is an ongoing love affair slash battle that I am uh, engaged in. All of those different 12-step groups derive from a spiritual train of thought which first took form right here in this parish. While it's a commonly held myth, and I was sort of disappointed to discover this because I'd been espousing it for years, um, the myth is that Sam Shoemaker helped Bill pen the 12 steps. He didn't. But the worldview associated with them came directly from Shoemaker's theology and understanding of how to do church. And that's what I'm here to talk about today, to explain what exactly were the guiding ideas and emphases that Shoemaker imparted to the members of Calvary Church, and in particular, the big book's author, Bill Wilson, who considered Sam to be one of AA's co-founders. 
what I think you'll quickly see is that if one removes what we might call the shoemaker angle, by the way, uh, one of AA's preeminent historians is a guy named Dick B., and this is a book he wrote all about Sam Shoemaker, which B.J. Weber gave me many years ago. Hi, good to see you, B.J. This book, um, the author and historian, um, refers to Sam Shoemaker's angle as Shoemaker's Protestant Episcopal Concepts. If you were to remove the Shoemaker angle from the big book, it would be about five pages long. The first thing you'd have to get rid of are all of the stories that start at page 164. But then you'd have to get rid of almost all of the text. One section that would remain is the famous introduction called The Doctor's Opinion, which refers to some of the insights that Bill garnered from Dr. William D. Silkworth, another founder of the program. But apart from that chapter... Everything else in the big book drips with Sam Shoemaker everywhere you look. And so learning about Sam Shoemaker is, in some cool sense, a fresh learning about AA as, as it originally was first espoused in this famous book. Another thing that wouldn't exist if it weren't for Sam Shoemaker are AA meetings or fellowship to fill church basements, all over the world on weekday evenings with bad coffee and huddles of America's last loyal cigarette smokers. God bless them. (laughs) To quote Bill Wilson himself, had it not been for Shoemaker's ministry to us in our early time, our fellowship would not be in existence today. To use an analogy... Sam Shoemaker was like a lifeguard who both introduced Bill Wilson to his first swimming pool and then taught him to swim in its waters. So let's look at the shape of the Shoemaker pool, the nature of the water it contains, and the strokes that sober alcoholics like Bill have been using for well over 80 years to chart a fresh and sober course through the choppy waters of life. Sam Shoemaker believed that God is real and that the objective truths of Christianity's claim can be experienced by people subjectively. And he believed that every life is incomplete until it is lived out of and with reference to God's spiritual influence. He believed that life without God is hollow and even tragic, and that every person is ultimately seeking this spiritual connection. He described life without faith to be like a kind of homesickness, the pangs of which we can never fully escape until we return home to God. While this may sound somewhat bleak and dismissive of so many people who are not sitting here this morning, the other side of this philosophical coin carries with it a promise that life's deepest fulfillment 
is well within reach of every human being, regardless of their background or any circumstantial or personal limitations. Every heart is wired for faith in the eternal, or so Shoemaker believed. As he put it, for the Christian, eternal life does not begin when we die. It begins with faith. Perhaps you know the Augustinian adage, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, Well, Shoemaker would have agreed with and indeed underscored this sentiment a thousand times over in his ministry. But this brings with it a very particular view of spirituality, which is that it is of dire importance. Without a spiritual connection to God, one is as good as dead, sleepwalking through life, a life that is ultimately worthless until it finds and connects with its creator. Perhaps this sounds idealistic or archaic, but in the world of alcoholism, it makes perfect sense. For Alcoholics Anonymous posits that true alcoholics cannot stay sober unless they experience an entire psycho-spiritual change. For Bill Wilson, sobriety without faith was not actually sobriety. At best, simply living within the space between one's last drink and next drink, a.k.a. being dry, was no life at all, just agony in the face of impending doom. And alcoholism was too cunning an opponent to allow such a state to exist for long without being revealed to be a kind of sober imposter. The true alcoholic was hopeless. How grim. This is not Oprah, in case you haven't noticed. Now, one of the early and defining ideas of AA that Bill did not get from Sam came from Dr. William Silkworth. Silkworth was the director of the Charles B. Towns Hospital for Drug and Alcohol Addictions in New York City in the 1930s. He was the leading authority at the time on alcoholism and substance abuse addiction. He famously concluded that alcoholism and addiction carried with it a strong physiological component, that alcoholism was not a problem of choosing poorly. Rather, it was like a kind of allergy. It ensured that people who carry it are doomed to relapse again and again. Alcoholics will inevitably make it make sense to try the damning experiment of taking that first drink again thereby setting in motion the horrible allergic consequences that come from being unable to properly metabolize the drink. Indeed, if you want a simple, one-word way of defining alcoholism, the best one word I know is relapse. 
I mentioned that this idea did not come from Shoemaker because I want you to see how it, as a starting diagnosis, would have perfectly enabled Bill's ears to perk up when he first encountered Shoemaker's message. You see, Shoemaker believed that neglecting God was like a plant avoiding sunlight and water. Spirituality was not just a factor, like a vitamin that one could choose to take or not and suffer minimal minimal implications if they did not take it. No, he felt that life without faith was basically a disaster. So he was at pains for people to view faith as life's greatest necessity. For the alcoholic who believed he could not stay sober without some form of cognitively embedded miracle, Shoemaker's perspective made complete sense. Shoemaker preached as though what he had to say was of the utmost importance and absolutely urgent. And Bill heard him and was like, yeah, I know. Alcoholics are extremists by nature, and Shoemaker's message complemented those tendencies and dovetailed in with them perfectly, seamlessly, providentially. In today's world, where Christendom often appears to have become seemingly irrelevant, or at best, a kind of accessory that one can choose to engage with peripherally for the sake of personal enhancement, Shoemaker's angle stands out in high relief. He wasn't saying, if you put on these fake eyelashes, you'll look even better. No, Shoemaker was saying, man, you're drowning, and you'll never make it to shore from there. Take this lifeline. All that to say... One of the most refreshing and distinct elements of Shoemaker's theological influence that still exists in AA is the notion that spirituality is essential. Shoemaker's famous line that God is either everything or he is nothing is actually quoted in the big book. There was, for Sam, no middle-of-the-road option when it comes to faith. AAs often compare the role of meetings in the life of the sober alcoholic as being like the role of insulin in the life of a diabetic. Without the program and fellowship, relapse is imminent for the true alcoholic. Newly sober members attend meetings because they need them just to stay afloat and make it through the day without drinking again. AA often recommends 90 meetings in 90 days, which may sound like a lot. Imagine if the church said, welcome, we expect to see you again every day for the next 89 days. That would sound like an impossible request. But for the person who has been unable to stay sober by their own efforts, those 90 meetings come easy. I personally attended 128 meetings in my first 90 days of sobriety, and it wasn't even a strain. Shoemaker wanted church and the faith she professes to function 
in this same seven days a week kind of way. He said of faith, either your faith is ancient history or it is current events. And so he built into the life of this parish ways for people to plug into God's spiritual outlet. Let me describe what that looked like. And I wonder if any of it will remind you of what you know of AA. Shoemaker had a method, and his method came from something called the Oxford Group, which was started in Oxford and Cambridge, and in some ways paralleled Methodism, which predated it by 200 years. Where Bill was more of a St. Paul, trying to get a new movement off the ground, Shoemaker was more of a John Wesley, trying to bring reform to his own denomination from within. I don't really want to get too much into the Oxford group, except to highlight the ways in which it influenced and foreshadowed AA. I personally am of the opinion that the very best things about the Oxford group that were born in this parish are still alive and well in the world of AA. The Oxford group claimed that small group gatherings in which people could get together to talk about themselves honestly was crucial for spiritual well-being. And these group gatherings, which spread throughout the country and also had a major influence upon Dr. Bob and the early AAs of Akron, Ohio, people would gather together to talk about what God was doing in their lives and to pray together. It's a simple recipe. Oxford group meetings would begin with a prayer, and then some spiritual topic would be introduced for discussion with the help of a short reading, often a passage from Scripture. The topic leader would share how the material related to his or her own life in the most honest terms possible. Then people would share about the material as they related to it. They would then have a time of prayer where they would pray about the topic as they felt led. The results were undeniable and deep-seated for those who attended. These meetings turned the abstract assertions of the Christian faith as Jacob pointed out, into a concrete form of spirituality, wherein God's guidance in the midst of daily life was revealed to be of the utmost practicality. In Shoemaker's church, prayer made an immense difference in one's life, and once a person tried it, they would soon not wish to go without it ever again. To the doubter, he was famous for saying, act as if. It's a famous AA slogan that can still be found on the walls of meetings all over the country, and I wonder if you knew that was a Sam Shoemakerism, act as if, with prayer, with God. In the Oxford group, people were also encouraged to study, in particular, their own personal shortcomings and failings. The term blockages was often used, and Bill uses it in the big book. For these character defects were understood to function in such a way that they blocked a person off from experiencing spiritual inspiration. In order to reveal these hindrances, people were asked to examine their lives from the standpoint of a series of absolutes 
which were spiritual standards laid out specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous four absolutes were honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. The members of the group were asked to take note and share the places in their lives where they discovered in turn dishonesty, selfishness as opposed to unselfishness, impurity as opposed to purity, and a lack of love, i.e. hate or intolerance or judgment. Then these issues that emerged were prayed about within the group. It was through this structure that Shoemaker managed to effectively breathe fresh life into the sometimes seemingly stale words of Christianity. Words like sin, repentance, confession, and sanctification. The essence of this practice, naturally translated into step four, made an inventory, and five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Steps six and seven, praying for God to remove our defects of character. And ten, continued to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And step eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. What's amazing about this approach is not only its practicality, but how divergent it is from the majority of most secular thought. In Shoemaker's world, if you want to get spiritual, then focus on the areas where you are unspiritual. Focus on your blockages. Don't make a list of goals toward which you aspire. Don't look into your soul in search of virtue. Rather, Look into yourself to find the opposite of virtue. It will quickly reveal itself. Look to God if you want to discover virtue and ask him to infiltrate your convoluted inner world. Shoemaker was known for saying repeatedly, God is God and self is not God. Consider a famous paragraph from page 62 of the big book and think of how divergent the emphases are from those found in most, for example, New Age frameworks where the self is viewed to be mostly divine and fully capable of great things. This is Bill Wilson writing in 1938. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will-run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. 
and there seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. In AA, every day that a person doesn't basically shoot themselves in the proverbial foot and totally blow some important interpersonal exchange is a miracle. And it takes a bunch of prayer just to experience that kind of reprieve for 24 hours. Shoemaker and his fans espoused the view that most people are mostly a mess and that their stories are defined much more by their missteps than by their 10,000 Fitbit steps. When good things come to pass for them, As a result of the practice of their faith, they should be quick to, in his words, marvel at what God has done for them and be quick to downplay what they have done for themselves. It may sound defeatist to assume so little of people. And I don't know about you, but if I walk into a church after a long, stressful week and they welcome me with little to no expectations, and then speak honestly about how much life often seems like a struggle, I immediately feel relieved. And like I can finally be honest, and like I am no longer alone. There are so few places like that in this world. This church under Sam Shoemaker's leadership in the 1930s and 40s, and now under Jacob Smith's rectorship, was and is a place like that. Perhaps my favorite quote of Shoemaker's, which perfectly reflects this understanding of people and what primarily life is like for them, goes like this. He said, Everyone either has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. And church is a place where we come to find God's grace in those places. Now that dog will hunt if you preach from that perspective. I guarantee it. And AA has taken these emphases to almost unimaginable places with honesty about sin and suffering, often horrifying the newcomer while the rest of the room bursts out in laughter. The classic example is that a newcomer comes in and finally, after many months of of being apprehensive, shares the worst thing they've ever done with their sponsor. And the sponsor responds, Oh yeah? That? I did that twice. Dick B., that historian I mentioned earlier, summarized these dynamics for church effectiveness in these words. Sam's big thrust was starting prayer groups to get people with troubles to talk it through, to help each other, and to be guided by God. What a beautiful definition of church. Following on from this, Shoemaker's groups emphasized the importance of restitution for harms done, 
the immediate outcropping of which is famously known as steps eight and nine of the 12 steps. In the same vein, the Oxford group taught that a morning devotional time of prayer on the front end of the day was essential for growing in conscious contact with God. Bill's section on the 11th step in the big book could have been directly lifted from Shoemaker's writings. And I wonder if any of you are familiar with that section. It talks about how to begin the day with very simple and practical prayers. If you've ever read that passage before, listen to Shoemaker and his words. Good morning. The morning sets the tone of the day. How the day starts in the morning is not only an indication of what kind of life you are living, and what direction you are going in, I'll tell you a secret. Meet God first in the day before you meet anyone else, and then you'll meet them all in a different way. May I tell you what we do in our home? When my wife and I get up, the first thing we do is reach for our Bibles, not a cigarette, nor a drink, nor the morning paper. We save that until 9.30. I'm just kidding. Um, We reach for our Bibles, we read a chapter or two, then we get quiet and spend some time in prayer. In quietness, we pray for the people, the causes, the immediate responsibilities of the day, and ask God to direct us and to use us to do his work and his will. We ask him for direction. We work out our plans together. We get clear if anything has gotten between us Begin the day that way, and I think you will really find that you have a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening, even a good life. You see Shoemaker's influence in the big book, step 11? And step 12, one other little quote from Shoemaker on prayer that I love. He said, prayer may not change things for you but it for sure changes you for things. In step 12, the sharing of the message, the being responsible to help when anyone anywhere asks for help, the evangelism component, you might say, of speaking from your own experience and helping others to connect with God and doing what you can to help them in their daily struggles. Well, this too was at the core of Shoemaker's understanding of church. I want to close with one such example of the 12th step that comes from AA, not from Shoemaker, not from the Oxford group. It's the kind of thing that I think we sometimes forget in the church, and it clarifies beautifully all of the things that Shoemaker was hoping we as a church would remember. This is the story that an old-timer from Atlanta named Dick A. describes recalling his first encounter with the world of Alcoholics Anonymous in Atlanta in 1977. These are Dick's words. So I walked up to the payphone and dialed the number for AA. I started crying, saying, I'm an alcoholic. Instead of rejecting me, she said, Just a minute. You wait right there. And she sent out a guy named Ed. 
I actually resisted listening to him for a while because I thought he wasn't hip like me. I knew that I was just down on my luck. Ed, on the other hand, looked like he'd never had any luck in the first place. But then I saw his eyes. He did what it talks about in the big book. He relived the horrors of his past with me. He told me about himself, and he did something that I learned a great lesson from. He asked me about me. He said, what do you do? And I started crying. I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. I drink every day, all day long. But he cut me off and said, no, what did you do for a living before drinking got the better of you? And I told him about my writing. He actually recognized some of the things I'd written. And he said, that's great stuff. You're very talented. God must really have something in mind for you. Then I just broke down and started crying because no one had said anything kind or hopeful to me in years. And if he hadn't done that, I would not be here sober today. He had read the big book, and he understood we don't get anyone into recovery by being tough on them. But we get people here by unconditional love. They're already hurt, and they've already been through enough hell. We don't need to add to it. We need to let them know that there's a place where there's hope. And that's what Ed did for me. After we talked for a little while, Ed put me into his pinto to get me something to drink so that he could help me taper off the booze because I was now starting to vibrate. He realized I was going into DTs because he had worked with wet drunks before. He asked, are you going to be okay? I'm going to stop here for just one minute to get some money so we can get you on track. And he got out of the car to use an ATM. It was the first ATM I'd ever seen. They were pretty new in 1977. It was a hot day in Atlanta, June 8th, 1977. So he goes up to the machine to get his $20 or whatever. And before he can get back to the car, I couldn't get open the door because my hands were rattling so much. And I had thrown up all down the inside of his brand new Pinto. And the only thing that he did when he opened the door and saw what had happened was to put his arm around me. He said, it's going to be okay. If he had been critical of me, I wouldn't be here tonight. But Ed knew that we don't have new cars, new jobs, or new lives unless we're willing to work with each other. And he loved me, and he cared for me, and he took me to a place where I could weather the withdrawals. Now, Bill Wilson credited, and I'm almost done, Sam Shoemaker as a key source for these ideas and their underpinning in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. These are Bill's words about Sam Shoemaker. It was from Sam Shoemaker that we absorbed most of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been trying to show you how that is true this morning. Steps that express the heart of AA's way of life. Dr. Silkworth gave us the needed knowledge of our illness, but Sam Shoemaker had given us the concrete knowledge of what we could do about it. 
he passed on the spiritual keys by which we were liberated. The early AA got its ideas of self-examination, acknowledgement of character defects, restitution for harm done, and working with others straight from the Oxford group and directly from Sam Shoemaker, their former leader in America, and from nowhere else. So put this all together and what do you get? When applied to preaching, this means that Shoemaker viewed the message from the pulpit to be existential, to be targeted toward the individual from within the context of personal suffering, and to be a kind of psychological exploration of the message of the gospel as it related primarily to the notion that God is a savior, that God is in the saving business, that he specializes in redemption, and that if you have tried saving yourself before and found that approach to be exhausting or insufficient, then you've come to the right place, meaning the right God. Bill wrote in 1955 of his response to this approach and his first meeting with Sam. These are his words. How well I remember that first day I caught sight of Sam. It was a Sunday service in his church. I was still rather gun-shy and diffident about churches. I can still see him standing there before the lectern, And Sam's utter honesty, his tremendous forthrightness, his almost terrible sincerity struck me deep. I shall never forget it. Amen. Thank you.